This is another episode of Adventures in DevOps, and I'm your host for today, Will Button. Joining me today, I have Corey O'Daniel, CEO and co-founder of MassDriver, but also from, let's see, you were a principal software architect at the Real Real Cloud Solution Architects at Container Heroes, prior to that, a staff engineer at Click Trips, and most importantly, Taco Aficionado. So Two things jumped to my mind right away. Number one, I need to know what your definition of the perfect taco is. But also, I want to talk about your background because it looks very similar to mine in terms of the amount of time you spend at each company. And I think that's an important thing to share with everyone, especially people who are just starting their careers. But we'll get to that. Meanwhile, Corey, thank you for joining me on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And opening with a taco question. Ooh, okay. Right? I think my, my favorite taco, like my go-to is just like a classic, like carne asada street taco. Like that is my happy place. And I've found a place in LA that's like one of the better ones I've had in my life. So that's, that's very convenient. It's at a place called Cacao, uh, Mexicatessen, I think is how you pronounce the second word, in uh, Eagle Rock. It's amazing. And their mole is delicious. Right on. I would, <laughs> I would be... I would be really, really sad if you told me that you were living in LA and couldn't find a good taco spot. I mean, the, the thing that it's like, I always feel, I mean, of course, LA is going to have a good taco spot, right? But like, I've, I lived in uh, Central America, Mexico, Honduras, so I feel bad saying that. But I mean, like, there's like this like interesting thing that happens in LA. There's a whole bunch of people here, like, like California is like, what, 30 plus percent Hispanic, right? And so like, there's a whole bunch of people here and then all the rich people are bougie and expect the best. So like all food has to be fantastic. Right. So like, I feel like those two things combine for like, just the, it's like, like LA is like the best food mall. Like everything's delicious. So um, I say that and I always feel bad. So I'm like, I've had some really great tacos in Mexico city, but like oh, the convenience of driving 10 minutes definitely impacts it. <laughs> oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So um, let's talk about your, your job history real quick. And I, and I want to be real clear here. I'm not trying to call you out on it because like I mentioned, mine, it looks very similar where a lot of your, your positions, you were there for, you know, a year and a half, two years, three years. And I, um, you know, like I'm, I'm older and like my parents were like, Oh, you get a job and you work there for 40 years and you're golden. And I've never held a job for more than three years. And I think that's just, I think part of that is just the new norm because after three years, like the way I approach it is if after three years of working with you, I haven't accomplished what you hired me to do, then I have failed. Yeah, What's your take on that? I've got a couple of takes on this, but I got a lot of hot takes. So um, apologies in advance to anybody. <laughs> but uh, I think one, we have a lot. If you think about our job as software engineers, if you just classify kind of all of us under the software umbrella, whether you, I don't know, some people don't feel like software engineers because they're like DevOps engineers and YAML engineers, but you are. Like you're just a different abstraction layer, different level, like different expertise. But like if you think about like us in the grand scheme of things, 
we're an interesting group of people. We are, our job is being a really good tool for the most part, right? Like if you think about where software started, where it was people that were professionals and they used software to do their job, right? Slowly software development became its own profession, right? So right. I see what we do a lot of time is like, like, not like, what's the best way of phrasing it? Um, like we are brought in to help business people codify things, right? Like that's really what yeah. we're doing. There's people that have an idea of how to make money and they don't know how to do the work that we do, right? right. And so we're not always invested in the business idea necessarily that we're writing software for, right? And like, you can see this in plenty of companies. Like I know uh, one of the companies I worked on very early, it's not on my resume because I was a consultant at the time was Honest Company, uh, for sending baby diapers to your house. There was a bunch of single men there that built the software. None of them were like, wow, I can't wait to get some diapers for you, man. Right? Right. <laughs> so like, that's the first thing is like, like, you can love what you do, but not necessarily love the thing that you're building, right? And that has interesting trade-offs. Like you might get to the point where it's like, okay, like the, all the ideation and collaboration with the business folk, which is kind of like what I really like about software is like talking through the ideas and figuring out like how to make that code, not necessarily typing it. Um, you get to a point where it's like, okay, we've done the ideation. We've done the interesting things. Like I feel like I'm really in a maintenance mode. I don't love the business. So it's like, okay, well, what, what is here for me? Right. And right. a lot of, a lot of careers where you see people working 10, 12, 13, 14 years, they don't have that choice. I'm a lawyer. If I don't like being a lawyer anymore, I'm kind of shit out of luck. <laughs> right. And so like, I think that's one part of it, but we're also, we're all hobbyists, right? Like we all, it's, oh, it's five o'clock. It's time to get off work. What am I going to do? I'm going to continue to sit at my computer and write some open source software. Or I'm going to go play with something, right? Like we love to play and learn new things. So I think like those two things, especially for me, like I have a, almost like a wanderlust. Like I have to be doing something more doing something interesting, engaging myself. And I get to a place where I'm like, okay, like there's just not really anything here that like rewards me. And guess what? The businesses aren't either. The, the best way, um, if there's any juniors listening to this, like, sorry guys, here's, here's the news. Um, the best way to get a raise is to quit your job and go someplace else. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> a 3% raise, which means you're losing like 8% of your salary over the last couple of years with inflation. The best way to jump 20% is get a new job. And at the end of the day, like, I like writing software, but you know what I really like? Getting paid well, right? And so it's like, if I got to the point where it's like, there's something that I can say I did, there's somebody at that company that I can use as a reference to be like, Corey rocked. And it's like, okay, I've gotten like, some like interesting raises, maybe I'm like, in line with inflation, but I'm not, I'm not making more money. It's like, what is the growth that I have here? I'm, if I'm not invested in the business, if I'm not learning anything new about the software, and I'm not getting paid more money, like I'm just degenerating in every way, right? Like, so it's time to go. Um, and what's really interesting, and you know, well, this doesn't offend anybody, but like when I see a resume and somebody's like, I worked there for 15 years, it's like, I don't want to work with you. Like, I, no offense, it's like, you you are so ingrained in like your Google. And you're like, I worked at Google for 15 years. It's like, well, guess what? Like, you you didn't work in the real world. Like you worked in like the perfect utopia of like building software around other software engineers for software engineers like that like so like seeing that person it's like they have enough tenure where you know that they weren't just getting fired from job to job 
they have that experiences, different teams, different stacks, different products where they can bring a lot more than just being able to type. Like that's, that's kind of the value I'm looking for when I'm looking at a resume. I'm terrified of somebody who just sat someplace forever. Did you just work on like the banner of Amazon for eight years? Like, what did you do, right? So I know there's probably some really great design tokens in here or whatever. Sorry, I didn't mean to offend you, but I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear you though. Um, that's me in a nutshell. Welcome. Hi, everyone. <laughs> right. Now, I, I had a, bo- a boss that I worked for a long time ago and um, I... Uh, I interviewed for another job and, and he found out about it because it was a smaller town. And, you know, I was terrified that he was just going to fire me on the spot. And he said, well, did you get the job? And I said, well, they're, they're waiting. Are you, are you mad? He said, no. He said, if, if no one else wants to hire you, why would I want you working for me? <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that's pretty savage. Right? <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, though, like, I've seen this, a number of times is like a hiring manager where like you'll make an offer to somebody, right? They come in the interview, you're like, oh, I really like that person. Like I interviewed a hundred people or whatever. And that was the one I'm like, that's my person. And they're like, mm, my company countered. And I'm like, yeah. if it took you leaving for your company to recognize your value and you accept that, like, I don't, I don't know. Like you, I mean, take it, definitely take it because it's more money. But you should immediately reshop that, <laughs> like, right? Out and find something better. Like take the money while you're there, and then go find the person that appreciates you for who you are and wants to give you a good salary, not just because you're gonna walk, right? So. Yeah, and the the counterpoint to that is, um, if you do stay with them, like all companies go through down cycles, and whenever they hit that next down cycle, they've already set precedent that they're only going to do the bare minimum to, to keep you around. And so mm-hmm. whenever they have to lay off people, they're likely to think, well, hey, this person has already been trying to leave anyway, so they need to be first on the chopping block to go. Yeah, especially if like you've got like, if that salary is no longer commensurate with the value that you have. <laughs> <laughs> right. You just got a 20% raise because you were going to quit. Like now you're the biggest line item on the team, right? Yeah. <laughs> No, I do think of um, this analogy just hit me. I, I kind of feel like what we do are like the wagon train masters of the old West. Like our job is to get the settlers and their wagons out West. And once we get them out West, we're done. Like you never hire a wagon master and say, well, we're going to use you to escort our wagon train for the next 15 years. No, it, yeah. it's get us to this point and then go away. Yeah. It's kind of like in software. It's like, we hi- huh. have you been watching 1883? Is that where this came from? Or are you just like a Oregon Trail fan? <laughs> no, 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 it's just a side quest. <laughs> 1883 is so good. Um, yeah, no, it, it's funny. It's like, yeah, nobody's ever like, yeah, we'll get out to Oregon. We'll keep the wagon guy around in case we want to go to like Montana or Alabama or something. Maybe we'll run the back. <laughs> Kudos, right? And like, that's what you're just like, okay, well, I'm here until like we have another direction we want to go. And we got to change all this stuff. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day, uh, a buddy of mine that's working on a, um, an AI code product. Um, and I won't call him out because I think we have big disagreements on it. But like this whole notion of like, we've had this like for like 25 years for anybody who's newer to the industry. But like when Macromedia Dreamweaver came out, I remember people being like, oh, we'll never be like business people are going to build all the web pages. And it's like, ah, no, they aren't. Um, but like, right. as, as like, as right, because at the end of the day, like, we are 
tools for business, right? Like, so this idea of like no code and AI that can help business people like build software, like that is a great idea. And like, I'm sure that that will happen eventually. But in the meantime, us being relegated to being code reviewers for a machine, like that feels like the most miserable intersection of how this could go, right? It's like the <laughs> creativity part and like thinking of how to like abstract like business logic, like business needs and logic into code is part of the fun part. And it's like, if that's just a computer and I'm just like, oh, I don't like the way you've spelled that variable. <laughs> like that's, right. that's, a, that's a sucky life for software engineers. So, um, but yeah, wagons, AI. It's all the same. That could, that could be our new startup. <laughs> Wagon train uh, AI. Yeah. <laughs> the safest path to, uh, to, to Oregon without ending up in the But th- there is, a, there is um, like one of the things you mentioned earlier, you know, about the, the alignment of you as an employee versus the company. Like the founders of the company are vested in the product. Um, mm-hmm. Me as an employee, I'm vested in providing a really good living for my family, putting food on a table, putting a roof over their head, giving them the things that make them feel like they're having a quality life. And and so we have different goals there. But jumping around like we do also is a benefit to those companies because those people like the diaper company, they're really passionate about how to get diapers to young families. Um, But if I've worked for a bunch of different industries, I can bring perspective to them and help them build a product that meets that need better because I know the roadblocks that they aren't familiar with and can't see because they're, they're focused on that, getting the diapers on the doorstep thing. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, you know, in in those, like as the company grows, especially from startup to, Tuesday Series B and beyond, like the the product also changes, right? So, like one of the things that might bring you into maybe a new e-commerce company is the person had experience at a previous e-commerce company. It's like, oh, we needed somebody who knows inventory systems and uh, you know uh, billing and all that stuff. Like, let's bring that person in. But then, as like this company evolves, let's say three years, we're doing like live video options. It's like, well, I don't necessarily need like this person has this deep knowledge in e-commerce systems anymore. I know I need somebody who knows how to do concurrent video streams to hundreds of thousands of people that might be bidding on this item, right? And so like our business has changed, the people that we need involved change. And sure, like that person that's been there for three or four years could go learn how to do like video streaming and you know all that stuff. But it's like also you could go poach somebody from, you know, Prime or something like that. Right. So I think like that moving, I think, is what makes us really good tools. Again, like if you sit in this narrow channel for 15 years doing one thing for one product with one team that may have people swapping in and out, like you were very uniform, right? And so like now when you're coming into another environment, I feel like it's harder to figure out like how to how to necessarily fit you in, right? right. Uh, I feel like it also kind of like limits where you can, I mean, I guess when you have the prestige of a big bank company, you can kind of go wherever you want. But like if you were like, oh, that person was at Macy's for 17 years, you know, like, well, we got to get them in here, right? <laughs> But if somebody's like, oh, I was at Google for 17 years, like, oh, how much do we how much money do we have in the bank? Let's give it to this person, give them 100 percent of the stock. Um You're right. <laughs> so um when we were chatting over email before the podcast, 
you mentioned that DevOps is pure bullshit. So <laughs> I, don't think I, want, I want to hear about this. Yeah. I'm going to call you out on it. <laughs> this is fine. I love talking about this. So like, I have to say that this is one of those moments where, um, gosh, I can't remember who said the quote, like being able to hold two opposing ideas in your head at the same time. Who was that? Um, uh-huh. I'm not really good at quotes and this is live, so I can't Google it, but uh, it's, also it's, it's like the definition of being crazy. So it's, I was like picturing Franklin or something. It's like, oh, that's a sign of intelligence. It's like also a sign of being nuts. But it was really oh, I think it was Einstein. Was it? I don't know. I, I There's more think of those people so. that are much smarter and successful than me said it. So right. you got to be. Uh, but it, it is and it isn't. And I think it's one of those things that's interesting. interesting. It's like DevOps is what it is based on like how much you're zoomed in or zoomed out, right? You could watch somebody who's building an application. Let's say it's 2013 and somebody's building a Ruby full stack app monolith and they deploy it on Heroku. Are they, are they doing DevOps? I would argue, yeah, they are. They're, they're operating their software. It happens to be running on a platform that's abstracted a lot away from it, but they're operating at the abstraction that they've been given, right? Yep. Versus, okay, I'm an engineer. I'm sitting around 300 microservices. Ah, I'm configuring the Kubernetes cluster and all the service meshes. Like, am I doing DevOps? Like, yeah, you are too. You're doing like the Dev and the Ops. Like, sure. So it, it, like, it can exist at different levels and you can create abstractions where people can still do DevOps. And I think that where we are today and how we like hand wave a lot of the definition of DevOps, like there's the people that are in like, it's a team camp. There's the people that are like, it's a collaboration camp. And there's the people that are like, you do everything, like you build it, you run it, like you have to do it all. And it's like, okay, well, like we kind of have like three definitions. So like that right there is a definition of bullshit. Like I can't even define this thing, right? But like all three of those like don't happen for most people. And I have proof. We love the Dora report in DevOps. But when you go through it, 50% of people that respond to the Dora report are like, everything's fucked here. It's just like you know, the numbers. Like it takes us. We release software once a quarter. It's like okay, and it's like an outage lasts up to two days. Like fifty percent of the door report respondents report pure chaos. So like we're all walking. Like we're on Hacker News. We're like, haha. At my company, we do DevOps great. And it's like okay, you're a sole CTO who deploys on Vercel. Like of course you're doing it great. Like you see your hands, it's fine. And then people will be like, we do DevOps great. We have eighty thousand microservices. Like you also have ten thousand ops people built an internal platform that makes it where you can do a DevOps with the abstraction that's given to you, right? And so I feel like I feel like like it is plausible. It is an idea that makes sense. And you do want your developers to have a baseline understanding of the abstraction that they're given. But I think the bullshit is in like like how, like are we giving people the right abstraction? And I would argue like that's where it really gets super complicated. And the answer is also like we we probably aren't, right? So What's interesting is looking at another report, um, uh, State of CD report is another interesting one. Uh, the most recent State of CD report found that only 27% of companies are using IAC, infrastructure as code, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're all DevOps engineers, we automate everything. Do we? If only 27% of companies are using infrastructure as code, and I'd venture to bet most of them that marked yes and that aren't using it 100% throughout the company. Right. <laughs> How are those other 73% of companies that are doing DevOps automating stuff if you aren't using Ansible, Chef, Terraform, or Pulumi? Are, are you using Selenium to automate clicking through the AWS dashboard? Like, I'm confused here. 
because we're all doing DevOps, but you're not automating any of your infrastructure management. That is where a whole other chunk of bullshit comes in. Infrastructure management, like we, some people consider it a part of DevOps, but it didn't exist really. I mean, it was like CF engine, but like there wasn't much infrastructure management or even cloud infrastructure when de- like the DevOps term was coined, right? And so this whole idea of cloud infrastructure, which is this thing that ran our software that over the past 10 years has slowly become our software, and it's going to get worse with AI and LLM models, like a lot of our software is no longer ours, right? In 2008, my code was my code. In 2012, it was like, well, all my queues and background processes are actually done by this SQS, SNS thing. Like I've got a lot less code to manage. I call people, other people's APIs. And now it's like, oh yeah, step functions and lambdas. Like my code's getting smaller and smaller and this cloud surface area is growing. And then you look at LLMs and it's like, I don't have any code. I just shove hashes in somebody else's database and magic comes out of it, right? Like we're getting a lot less code, a lot more consumed cloud services. And I don't think we ever tradition like went back and like included infrastructure management like in that loop, right? And then when you do, whose responsibility is it? Because if you say all of AWS's, the responsibility of all the services that you may or may not use in AWS is your engineer's responsibility, you're out of your fucking mind. Like their responsibility is to build business value. If they have to go read the 27 pages of how to monitor, uh, configure, secure, Yada 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 yada. Postgres. When it's like locally, I just like Docker run Postgres. It's like that. That's the abstraction they should see. They should say, "I need Postgres," and they should be able to assume that whatever's happened on the other side, I've got secure, compliant, scalable, cost-effective thing. I shouldn't have to think about costs, and I shouldn't have to be sidelined on it three months later when the CFO's pissed off that we're spending thirty grand a month on a misconfigured Postgres instance. Oh. Sorry, so that's why I think it's bullshit. But here's the catch is like, I'm also one of these people that's like, hey, platform engineering, you got to do this, right? Which I will admit, platform engineering is a subset of DevOps. But the catch is like, most people don't have the budget to actually do it or the talent to actually do it because their DevOps team or operations team is fucking drowning in technical debt and like trying to do ticket ops for their developers. And the people that just have developers and don't have an ops team um, they're probably better served by the past than going directly to the cloud until they get to the point that they need that scale. So oh, that's me defending the DevOps is bullshit. Um, so it was like a therapy session. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get your insurance details after the podcast here. I'm going to bill your insurance for that. <laughs> yeah. So I look forward to com- uh, comments after the show. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you. Um, and it, the the irony here is I actually have the title at my current employer of DevOps engineer. And I, I, I agree, like, that should not be a thing. And I, I think part of it just become, to, in my perspective, is we've, we've, um, we've just kind of like, that's where we've drawn the line in the sand. Like, oh, we're doing DevOps, damn it, no matter how hard it is. And it's kind of like, you know, being a, a Ford guy or a Chevy guy, you know, if you, if you buy a Chevy, you're a Chevy guy. Now you, you know, it's like, oh, I, I can't buy a Ford or they're going to kick me out of the line dancing club or, or whatever, you know, and we, we have this failure to adapt with the way that our, our industry has changed. Um, and, you know, because you can't, like you mentioned, you can't ask, ask a software engineer to be proficient in writing 
um, code in Go, but you also have to be an expert in Postgres database and uh, an expert in Docker and Kubernetes and security gateways and cost management. There's just so much context switching there that you'll never get anything better than mediocre across the board. Yeah, I and mean, it's funny because, like, I feel like I might be wrong here. I probably am. <laughs> I feel like um, I feel like two things have kind of got us into the mess that we're in with DevOps, right? Because if you think about just like an engineer, like the amount of stuff that we will stack as a responsibility on engineers, right? Why does this happen, right? So, okay, I'm a software developer, write software. Okay, I use a database. I pick Postgres. Okay, well, this isn't Oracle 9i, it's Postgres. So I'm assuming that you're the database administrator, also software developer. You're going to tune your indexes, <laughs> right? Like, like a decade, you know, 15 years ago, like we had DBAs, but like you're seeing them become less and less prevalent in businesses, except for like massive, massive businesses. Because like, oh, it's like that person will figure it out. Um, and then, so that happens, we stack that responsibility on people. And I think it's twofold. I think one, it's business people don't understand like where the lines are. And we're, again, we're hobbyists. So it's like, okay, like, hey, um, yeah, Will, um, do you know how like LLM building works? And you're like, no. And you're like, well, you got a better chance of figuring out than me over here. He's working on the old uh, Excel spreadsheets, right? And so you're like, if you give a software engineer like time to go discover something, they will do it. Now, will they become a master of it? No. Will they get something that works enough to go into production? Yes. And that's where our product managers are content. Like they're not like, oh, Corey, did you master building LLMs before you lob this thing into a Kubernetes cluster? It's like, no, <laughs> but it works, right? And right. that's all that matters. Like I made the button click faster. I sold more of the things. Like at the end of the day, that's what matters to the business. Not necessarily that it's, perfectly secure. Do you care about that business? Do you care that it's perfectly secure? Or are you going to buy a insurance plan from Equifax to cover people's credit when it breaches? Uh, yeah. It's it's much, much cheaper to buy the insurance plan than to spend the engineering resources to make yeah. it secure. Yeah, yeah. That's just ask my uh, real estate investment company that I'm working with because I prompted them on that. I'm like, how much do you time do you spend on security? Like, are things perfectly secure? Within a week of investing, there was a breach. And like, we leaked your social security number and all your financials. I was like, I knew <laughs> my credit's locked already. It's fine. Um, but so I think like, you know, that's, that's what's really interesting. Like, we'll just stack stuff on people. And I think that's kind of where it's easy for burnout to happen, right? Like you think you're going to be focusing on this problem and, and you are, you're trying to solve this problem, but all these other things are kind of tangential to it. And if you don't have the people that know that thing, your company's looking around like, okay, who has either the bandwidth or who do we think is like the best engineer that can go figure it out? And like, now they have another technology, another responsibility that kind of lands on their plate. If you're a small company, you're starting to grow and you're like, okay, like I'm doing a lot of this cloud stuff. Like we should hire our first DevOps engineer. And so now it's, eight people that don't have like this deep experience in the cloud. They're like, we should hire somebody that does. And then you start that job and you're the dev first DevOps engineer. And you're like, okay, I had a lot of work for like three months. It was stressful, but now I'm sitting around got like five hours of work to do a month. Right. Right. And that's where it gets weird because it's like, you can do two things at that point in time. You can either sit back and be like, <laughs> I have 35 hours of drinking coffee, or you can try to do like real DevOps. How do I make this easier for those developers? How do I make things more efficient? How do I make things more resilient? How can I start practicing some SRE principles since I have this bandwidth to help make sure their software is staying up? And that's where I think, I feel like a lot of DevOps people 
particularly if you look at r slash devops so that's a group of people not to anger but like the amount of times people that are like i have nothing to do like i'm i've been working here i've got like i work like 10 hours a week and like everything's like kind of messy still but like nobody's giving me like the DNS project to work on. And it's like, well, you're supposed to be talking to your, you're supposed to be doing that collaboration part, talking to your engineers, figuring out how you can make their life better. Like that is your job in like that DevOps role is like to continue to make the software better, the business better, and the engineering dev experience better. And I think that like once you start going down that path, like that is a good place for DevOps to be. But where we're just tossing stuff over a fence to a person and we're like, oh, well, they're the DevOps team, they can figure the cloud things for me. Like that, that's, that's, that's just 2005. <laughs> just, right. 2005. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I, I take the approach that as, a, as my role in DevOps, the, the software engineers are my customers. So my job is to make it, to like provide the tools that they can consume that, let them do their job more efficiently and putting in um, putting in guardrails so that they can do what they need to do. But then I have guardrails in place so that they don't accidentally do something that they may not want to do. Like, you know, expose root access to the public internet or something like that. Yeah. And I think those guardrails are important. Like that's actually a term that we use pretty, um, pretty frequently in like our sales calls and even in our, our content. Um, like, I feel like, again, like our software is becoming more and more cloud services that we're consuming and less of our code. A lot of, a lot of HTTP calls. And I feel like when you're using the cloud, like there's so many services, like how do you do, um, how do you, how do you do event driven systems on AWS? Is it SNS and SQS? Is it EventBridge? Is it Kafka? Like, like I, I've got three or four options just in AWS, right? And then let's say I pick it. Okay, let's say I picked my solution. Looking through some of the AWS, like, models when you, like, post your thing to make a new thing, like, some of them are insane. Like, one of the most crazy services at AWS is S3. S3 has, like, 120 configuration options, right? And so there's a lot of stuff that is getting exposed to your engineers. So if you're like, oh, I did DevOps because like I installed Terraform and a GitHub action and now they can write whatever. Like you didn't, you just, you just gave everyone a massive foot gun. You didn't make their life better. Sure, they can do whatever they want, but like, should they be able to do whatever they want, right? And I think that what we need to be doing as an industry, DevOps, platform engineering operations, whatever your company calls it, is like enabling those developers to do what they need to do, but also shrinking the surface area of the cloud, right? So like if you you have an established operation scheme that understands all the cloud services, being able to have like a catalog of like, here's what we use for event-driven systems, it's Kafka. If you don't want to use Kafka, that is your choice, but it is now your operational burden. Like make an RFC as to why we should also support EventBridge and like we will take on owning EventBridge. But like if you're just going to Lone Ranger it, like go for it, right? And also, even when you pick a service, like you need to, or a service, you need to shrink the surface area of that service, right? Like the cloud's goal is not to be easy. AWS isn't, we're going to be easy. If they were easy, they would only have light sail. Their, right. job, their job is to be capable. Their job is that you can cut this pizza in any shape you want to make your party happy. You want squares, cut squares. You want wedges, cut wedges. You want to do a weird little zigzag, you want it all edge. I don't know, whatever you want to do, like 
you should be able to do it with AWS and here's all these things, right? But the reality is, is like a lot of those configuration settings don't matter for your use case. Hi, Aurora. Like you can configure Aurora. There's so many ways that you can, I'm going to go provision Postgres and I'm going to turn on this thing that is uh, this, this field that I can turn on. It's like, ah, that's only for MySQL Aurora. It's like, oh, well then why was it exposed to me? I only use Postgres. I'm not going to randomly switch from Postgres to MySQL one day, but I might randomly change a field name, right? Or like a field value, right? So like shrinking that service area is important. Like why? Why? So I would love somebody in the comments, tell me why I'm wrong. Why is turning encryption off for anything an option anymore? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think there's like a certain amount of responsibility. I actually just had this conversation the other day. I think there's a certain amount of responsibility from the cloud providers to do a better job here. Like if uh, if I'm, as a cloud provider, they advocate infrastructure as code, least privileged security, um, and, and all of those kinds of things. So why in their documentation does it say, oh, if you want to push to uh, the artifact repository, you need artifact repository dot admin privileges. Like, do I, do I really need admin privileges or was there a better way you could have phrased that to help me adhere to the principles that your marketing team is advocating? Yeah. And again, like, I don't, I don't, yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't think that their goal is to be easy. It's just like, it's, it's just to have those capabilities, right? Like I am is like a whole other just <laughs> And you can see it, like, it's funny, like, I feel like some people are like, I, what are you talking about IAM? It's like, I, IAM is cloud lock-in. Like, everything, like, <laughs> we're using Dynamo cloud lock-in. It's like, no, you can use Scala. It's like, S3, ah, we're locked in. It's like, I just throw MinIO in front of GCS or whatever. Like, there's plenty of ways to get around cloud lock-in, except for IAM. Like, if you invest heavily, if you go beyond the asterisk, oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, that is, that is a, like, everybody's IAM is just, like, completely different. You can, you can tell how like hard it is. Like there's IAM engineer roles now in large companies. And it's just like, oh, my, like I can't, like it's important. Oh, for sure. I can't imagine, I personally can't imagine loading that job. <laughs> and and, and like, you're just saying with like, like pushing any containers, like, oh, you, I need that. I'm going to push it. Right? It's like getting to those places where you're like, hmm. My sole role is to configure IAM for this place, but the cloud doesn't give me the ability to make maybe a particular service as secure as I want, right? Because of the granularity. Um, Google. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like software. It might not sound like it. I actually love it, but I just, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, I think that's part of it. I think that's one of the common characteristics of software engineers is there's a, a, a really, really tight balance of which we like more. Do we like writing the code more or do we like bitching about writing the code more? And, and it's, it's a tight race. <laughs> bitching about it. I, I code, I, I still do a lot of development, um, probably more than I should, but I, I switch between Go, Golang and Elixir. Uh, that's our, our apps built in pretty frequently. And, you know, it, whatever language I'm in, I'm just like, oh, I hate this language. I wish I was. <laughs> uh, it's constant. It's like, oh, if air. <laughs> like, oh, I'm gonna rewrite this in language X. Then you get it done, and you're like, ah, that was stupid. Yeah, I had one of those yesterday. I spent about four hours working on something, and I was just like, I finished. And I was like, why did I? 
Why did I do that? <laughs> I had a purpose when I started. It got way out of hand. Like I still do it. I'm like I over-engineered the shit out of it, and I was like, I don't, I don't know why I spent four hours on that, but I got to go do some real work now. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I got to do something that I can actually claim because I, I can't show up tomorrow and say that's all I did. If you feel that way, people, it's hard to shake. This is this is this is me years into being a CEO, and I will still go over-engineer something if I've got a spare time. <laughs> Oh, for sure. Yeah. I I actually, um, for my side projects, I have a, a group of guys that I, I hang out with. And we all know that our sole job as part of that group is to call each other out on that specific thing. Like, are you chasing a shiny object? No. Well, okay. Maybe. Yes. All right, fine. I'll go back to what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> I'm going to start the antithesis of that group. I'm going to start like a Rube Goldberg engineering group. <laughs> You've made that more complicated and like throwing some more technology into it. It's like, you know what? I could, I could. I'm going to spend a couple hours this weekend doing that. <laughs> An LLM that generates bash scripts. <laughs> oh man, that would be, I'm I'm afraid of i'm like the next five years i'm like oh i'm in like of like a i think i'm in the trough of disillusionment around ai like people keep asking us we, we did our fundraise this year and we raised eight million dollars and we did it without putting i mean it was a hard year to raise we did it without putting the words machine learning data science or ai in our deck um and we've stayed away from it um in like our materials um just because like i don't I don't want to build our product off of like some like trend that may not go where we hope it goes and seeing some of the other people in the ops space, like, ah, AI ops. And you're like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to give this a spin. And I'm like, I would like uh, a HIPAA and SOC 2 compliant Kubernetes cluster. <laughs> and I will not mention the name of the other cloud provider, but I shit you not, the code that it generated was some TypeScripty code, wink, wink, um, <laughs> it, was like, it was all the code to like initialize an EKS cluster. And then the comments, I kid you not, I kid you not. The only code was like some import statements. It was like cluster equals new EKS cluster. And then in the comments, it was like <laughs> configuration for stock two and HIPAA compliance here. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, the intelligence is pretty freaking artificial if you ask me. Um <laughs> But like, I don't know, like the thing that's really freaky about it, I can't, God, I couldn't even imagine if the bad scripts would be terrifying, but like, this is, this is again, a part of our problem. Like we don't have enough ops experience in most of our engineering team. And so the idea kind of like business people looking at engineers and not being able to tell like where the lines are, same thing happens when you go and ask something to write software for something you're not familiar with. If you aren't familiar with running Kubernetes or maybe it's even just configuring some serverless stuff, you know, step functions or whatever, and you're like, oh, I need some Terraform that'll do all the step function stuff, make it for me, computer. It's like, okay, like, cool. You might run that and it might apply. It, it may or may not do what you intended it to do, but like now you have a bag of code in front of you that you don't understand that's doing something and you don't know if it's doing it right. And like ChatGPT was confidently, hey, I did it right, I think. Like, you have no idea. So like, are you going to go Google every single one of those lines of code that, isn't the resource block to figure out like, oh, is this is this what I need to set for this? Like, no, you're like, <laughs> just like the product manager looking at you, like, that oh, works, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, oh, fuck, I got a step function. I'm moving on. It's like, okay, <laughs> right. 
So like that's that's free. And it's like I would rather have you just gone on our app and like I would just please go click it in the AWS console. Like <laughs> turn on a macro reporter, install the Chrome extension that like records your mouse clicks. Go do that and just use the Chrome extension as like your IAC tool at that point in time. I'd rather you do that than run something through some AI and hope <laughs> it's right. Like um. that's great. I've been I've been struggling with this for a while. Is um, for people who do click ops, how do you how do you uh, document and track that but I, I never thought of just using the click recorder in chrome that's brilliant yeah <laughs> problem solved yeah we um, don't need git we've got these we've got these video files just watch them and you'll see how it's built well if i'm allowed to, i'm not sure if i'm allowed to plug myself but you're looking for something that feels like click ops for your engineers but you want all that operational maturity and security no, I do want to talk about that, which is one of the reasons why I was looking forward to having you on the show here, because I like I'm at the point where I advocate strongly for infrastructure as code, because six weeks from now, whenever something is different, I want to be able to look at a, a Git history or a pull request history and see what has changed or run Terraform and see that whatever's running out on that provider doesn't match what Terraform says it should be. And that's been one of the big challenges I've had with the platform engineering tools that some of them are just click ops on top of click ops, you know, and it's like, if I just wanted click ops, I would just use AWS. So how do you approach that? Yeah. So I think that, okay. So I'm going to tell you a couple of things about me. Um, I'm a software engineer. So I understand like, I understand vendors. Uh, and I have this struggle as like a CEO and a founder and also a developer where like, I, I don't want to be the annoying vendor. That's why I was like, I don't know what the plug, like I want to talk about, like I want to sell this thing, but at the same time, like I don't want to annoy people. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, so what, what's interesting is, so the second thing about me, I'm going to say something and I'm going to be, I'm not going to be the founder that says this and is disingenuous. I, I think we're going about, enabling platform engineering much differently than a lot of the other tools out there, right? So what's really freaking me out about this is I, I think platform engineering is important. Actually, can I make a note of like uh, click ops, how we do it different. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Do I have enough time to segue? You said we can go on forever, right? I can. Yeah, that. there's, there's, there's no time um, limit. Uh, so here, here's why this is important. I, I spend a lot of time like reading surveys. Um, I like it. It's one of my weird things. And I feel like a lot of times, like when you get a survey at the door report, there's like a couple of like pull quotes and some numbers, and you're like, oh, we're all doing much better. But then when you like get to page like 37, you're like, holy crap, everyone's going to die. Um, looking at the Stack Overflow survey for the past four or five years is really interesting. If you look at cloud operations experience, every, every administrative role, operations role, in the Stack Overflow survey has steadily declined in the amount of people doing it over the past five years. DBAs, SREs, DevOps, operations, all of them are going down. Now, are we retiring fast? Maybe, we have a lot of gray beards. That could be the reason, but also we're just making engineers faster. We're making engineers faster than we've ever made engineers ever. Remember 70 years ago, there was like one software developer. Now there's more software developers on the planet than there are people in Australia. But you make an entire huge ass country full of kangaroos and software developers. Like that's that's something we could do. It'd be really weird, but we shouldn't do it. But like that's hard for it. <laughs> so like, where are these people coming from? They're coming from boot camps. Like we're still having a lot of people coming out of universities, but we're printing people out of boot camps, and that's not a bad thing. 
some of my favorite engineers I've hired are out of boot camps. There's a personality type that I look for when I see somebody coming from a boot camp, like a fresh grad, no history, that's 18. That's a person that was real, that was probably doing doing software, got very excited, went straight to a boot camp because like I want to get in the job. I don't want to sit four years learning about algorithms to build a database. Like I want to build a website. That person, right? The person that worked at a power plant for 15 years and they're like 43 that decides I'm going to give up on this career that I've been doing all this time to go learn software. Like that person has grit. I love that person. I think that boot camps are an important part of our society. What? How do you tie boot camps to like civilization? Everything's moving to the cloud. Everybody is a software company. We're becoming more and more dependent on this stuff. We need more software developers. But what's happening is boot camps don't teach the cloud. Boot camps don't teach DevOps. They teach you to build React code. They teach you to build Rails. They teach you to add business value as quickly as possible, which most businesses don't see DevOps as business value, right? So it's like you come out of this boot camp for 12 weeks. You got your $26,000 tuition with like 8% or whatever. And you're like, I'm ready to write some React. I'm ready to Rails generate an active record model. Like, let's go. And so those people come in and they don't have any DevOps experience. They don't have any operations experience, right? And I think that's where we're seeing this, like, like this steep drop is like some people are retiring because like we do have a lot of gray beards, especially on like the, in the data centers and more on the administrative, like Linux system inside, those people are going away. And sure. we're also just printing a bunch of people that are very much at the, the closer to the, 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 the top end of the stack, right? And the thing that sucks with ops is we don't teach it in universities either because if you taught, taught Kubernetes, actually, if you, if you rewind four years and you taught people how to deploy in the cloud, what would you be teaching them? Probably not Kubernetes four years ago. Today, it'd be Kubernetes, but four years ago. Oh, yeah. It'd be, be EC2 instance. Right? Yeah, maybe yeah. Lambda, yeah. Like nothing is really, I'm going to say something bold here. Nothing's really changed about our software in the past 70 years. Loops, variables, ifs, sure, you got different syntactical sugar on it. But in the last 20 years, everything about the way that we package and ship software to the cloud has changed four times. We had data centers, then we had VMs. Um, then we had everybody started going to serverless and then containers came around and then like big container orchestration and then serverless containers and now LLMs. Like we've changed the, actually LLMs might be the first thing that's happened in like the way we write software that's fundamentally changed besides just like the if loop, you're not, because they're all just jamming hashes into somebody else's database now, sorry. So, so that is, sorry, so that was me explaining like why we're doing things a little different. Like the, the amount of operational knowledge on this planet is going down in relation to the amount of software developers we have. And those software developers are only going to learn ops on the job. That's a problem, right? Yep. Who are they going to learn ops from? Are, they, are, are all your DevOps engineers going to turn into, are you going to make a 50-room campus so you can teach all your software developers like how to do a DevOps? Are you going to have brown bags every single day? Like You're not going to transfer that knowledge from your DevOps team to your engineers in an efficient way. Right. So you need to build the subtraction. You need to lower the surface area so they can do as much as they have access to without having to like jump over that wall. Right. As soon as you reach around that wall and you're like, hey, I was able to deploy everything myself, but like <laughs> it's down. <laughs> okay, well, they gotta be able to troubleshoot themselves. Right. If they have to come around to you and be like, hey, I, I deployed this thing and built a container, it went up and now it's just fucked. Like if they come around to you, like that. Like they need to have that knowledge themselves. Like we need to be building those abstractions so they can solve these problems themselves. And also at the same time, I think as a platform, 
and we do this and we hope that our users do this for their users do this, but like as platforms and people with this knowledge, we need to figure out how to get it as efficiently as we can into developers because we do need more people understanding how this stuff works. And I love when one of our customers even is like, hey, how does this work like under the hood? It's like, yeah, you should you should be asking me that. Like you, sh you should want to know that. But like, if you don't, you should be able to do your job effectively. And so what I'm, sorry, this is a long lead up to me saying, I think we do things a bit differently, which every found, startup founder says. But the, the, the thing that made it different for us is everybody's talking about platform engineering. And the first thing they jump to is, ooh, there's like Kubernetes. Oh, guess what? I love Kubernetes. I develop on Kubernetes locally. Like that's how much of a family <laughs> I would be like, if you want to use my product, you have to use Kubernetes. I just made a choice for you, right? Like you might be perfectly fine running on Lambda, right? And but want to use Mass Driver. Um, so I think that, and I think one of the things that's a little scary about this idea of platform engineering is like, we're leaning too heavily towards Kubernetes and not accepting the fact that there are other things. I mean, not, not that anybody's going to run out and run mesosphere but like there is nomad there are the runtimes there are things that are outside of kubernetes right it's very plausible that your software teams and your company operate their software differently and so the idea that you're going to come in and be like we have one platform and everybody 90 percent of you are going to fit your code into this one platform it's like okay that sucks for the jam stack people that sucks <laughs> for other people so what are we doing are we going to run are we going to run llms on Vercel, are we going to run Jamstack on OpenAI? Like, how are we going to fit this all into one platform? The real, the reality is, like, much like organizations are different, like your your teams are different, and so you can't have a platform that does everything. Those engineers need to be able to have the agency to get what they need from the cloud without constantly bothering another person or reading a white paper. And the business needs to know that that software is secure and compliant. That's hard to do when most companies are abysmally failing at DevOps, 51% of you based on the Dora report. So if that's not you, one of your friends is lying. Um, <laughs> and and also like a lot of these companies, like you can see a company with like 15 engineers and like nobody really has ops experience, right? So it's like, we just don't have enough of this. And so our approach has been to focus on operations engineers and DevOps engineers that are either coming to this realization that they cannot scale themselves or their company is kind of mandated, like, hey, Gartner said 80% of companies are going to have a platform team by, I'm sorry, I'm talking about the wrong set amount, platform team by 2026, and it's going to make DevOps more efficient. So DevOps guy, you're a platform engineer now. And he's, what the fuck does that mean, right? And so our approach is we should be able to work with, so like our product's number one user is operations. They don't use our site. <laughs> they use the tools that they know. So MassDriver today works with Terraform, Open, Tofu, and Helm. Um, and we're currently working on CloudFormation and Lumi support. And so the idea is you as an operations team can decide what cloud services you want to support. And then you limit that API of those cloud services using Terraform, Helm, Open, Tofu, et cetera. And so you just publish, okay, we support Kafka for events. We support Postgres as a transactional database. We run on Kubernetes. We also support Lambda and API gateway for the serverless team. And you essentially write Terraform modules with your, whether it's OPA or bridge crew, whatever, inside of it, you create these modules that are your business's security compliance and practices codified into them, naming conventions, et cetera. Um, you publish them into MassDriver instead of like the Terraform registry or whatever. 
And now when your developers come in, what they see is they, instead of seeing all the services of AWS, they see the services that my operations team supports. Now what's really cool is they just draw infrastructure. So like, okay, like we run on Kubernetes, like throw my Kubernetes cluster up there. I have a whole I have a whole I have a whole rant I can go on about how many Kubernetes clusters you should have. It should be more than one. Cattle. No, say it isn't so. Cattle versus pets, people. You got all these all these applications are cattle, but that cluster is certainly a pet, isn't it? You're afraid to change it. Um, <laughs> um, but, but we named it and everything. <laughs> we actually had. Sorry, I'm going to say something and uh, a, a little side tangent. We had. Uh, a company, a company of quick trips that we were at, we had essentially two Kubernetes clusters that ran production. And what we would do is every time that we were doing a Kubernetes upgrade, we'd do it to essentially like our standby, and then we'd roll applications, cut traffic to it. And so like, like that's how we kind of determined that like, okay, upgrading at 1.27 or whatever worked. Um, and both of those clusters were pets-ish. <laughs> we created them with Kube Admin or Kube, no, Cops. Um, but they both had names and it was because Siri could never get Kubernetes right. So we had Cuban Eddie and Cooper Nettie. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but anyway, so like our, our approach is, all right, I'm a, I'm a brain math, follow me. But um, so our approach is like, make sure the operations people don't have to learn a new tool chain, right? Like use the stuff that you already know. Like there's not enough of you. I can't as a business have you spending more time learning a bunch of new stuff when engineers are already depending on you for stuff, demanding stuff from you, your team is already stressed out. And now we're saying, hey, we want to make, we want to scale you to make it more efficient for them by adding more work to your plate on top of the other stuff that's going to happen. It's like, okay, well, our, is, if we're also kind of like helping with outages and monitoring, et cetera, like, are we just not doing that anymore while we go build a platform, right? right. Are, are we all going to turn into React engineers so we can build backstage plugins? And it's like, no, like, so our approach has always been, and I'm an operations engineer, like, we wanted to build something that worked with the tools that your team knows. You publish it in there. Your engineers just draw the infrastructure. And so as they're drawing, what happens is they drag, let's say they drag an API gateway out or a Lambda. Um, there's these additions that you can make to your infrastructure's code. Um, we call, we internally, we call them artifacts, but it effectively lets you create a, a diagram of your Terraform. So you can say like my application runtime, like Terraform module or Helm module depends on Kubernetes. And so now, like when you drag that onto the canvas, it'll automatically connect to like the nearest Kubernetes cluster. You can move it around, but like your engineers don't have to think about it. So it's like, okay, we're building this service for the first time we wrote it. I'm going to use the, the the Helm chart here for running Golang applications. I drag it on. I set my Docker repository, and it just connects to a Kubernetes cluster. I hit deploy, and I get back to work. Right. And so they have this limited view of the cloud. It's the services that your team supports, but then also. Your Terraform variables are also when they come into Mass Driver are become heavy documentation. So it's not just like var name. <laughs> like you can actually Mass Driver supports like super rich and like cross validation. So you can say like if the name is this, then this other field has to have this specific validation on it as well. So you can start to codify a lot of constraints into the system. So you can say, okay, we have an Aurora Postgres bundle and it can run. Anyways, if anybody's familiar with Aurora V2, there's an instance type called serverless. It's very weird. <laughs> but so, so technically, you can switch your Aurora back and forth between serverless and server full. Like you experience a downtime while it's happening, but you can switch it back and forth, right? But the configuration changes wildly depending on if the instance type is serverless, not if it's a serverless Aurora. It's 
the instance type of serverless, right? And so like uh, internally, we have an Aurora Postgres bundle that we use and we use serverless for all of our not like our preview environments. And then we use serverful for our production environment. And so that configuration like it opens on the side panel it's your Terraform variables. And then as you change values, the configuration changes. So it'll actually expose and hide fields based on this. So now as the operations team, you can say, you know what? I know that this MySQL bin log stuff of Aurora doesn't apply to Postgres whatsoever. So those fields, none of those variables are even in here. You can't even don't have to worry about thinking about configuring your resource. And you can also say that when they, you have this min and max scale for your instances, when somebody selects a serverless instance, those fields are hidden. So you don't accidentally say, I want 10 serverlesses. And instead they show, it shows you ACUs, right? And so you can start to codify a lot of like convention there for them. And so now your engineers, they don't have to learn a new tool either. They don't have to go copy and paste a bunch of Terraform modules into a directory, set up some GitHub actions. Literally, the only thing they do is they put our CLI in there and they says, okay, I want to deploy my production database or I want to deploy my production application. And it's pretty much just like the name of the resource in MassDriver and it deploys. You can put a JSON file in there that'll get applied to either Helm or Terraform or Plumi to configure it based on the constraints that you've defined as an operations engineer. And now what's happened is you're able to scale this operations team. You can do platform engineering. Um, effectively, MassDriver, we're, we're a platform orchestrator. If you're familiar with the 700 terms that people have invented in this space, um, and each of your projects in MassDriver is effectively its own internal developer platform. But the cool thing is it's not developers having the operations team doesn't have to go and talk to developers and make an MVP and make a giant form to survey them on like what they like and don't like and collaboration back and forth. You say, this is what we support as a business. This is all that we know. This is what we're using today. And if you need a new service, open a GitHub issue and we'll, we'll build the module for it. It'll be a MassDriver. You can drag and drop it, right? Like at the end of the day, all of your modules and mass drivers get up repositories where your code is like that's how we kind of do the collaboration and then your ops team didn't have to learn anything new uh your engineering team didn't have to go learn terraform or Plumi or github actions or anything like that they can focus on writing code they just drag something onto the canvas when they need it you as the ops person get an audit log get deployment histories you can roll back um, we have automated costs and metrics built into it, right? So trying to give that full agency to the developer. As soon as you configure something in MassDriver, a day later, costs show up. So if you configure this Postgres instance, you're like, oh, holy shit, it's $300 like the next day, right? right. Like, okay, I'm going to change my configuration here because I can also see that my <laughs> utilization is 3%. So I don't have a mad engineering manager or mad CFO three months later when they realize the cloud bill's high. I, as a software developer, have this agency to control my costs with the same tool that I provision it and the same place that I can see my metrics. If we turn your dash, your, your canvas, your essentially your, your network diagram is also your dashboard. So you can say, okay, I want all these metrics from CloudWatch to show up alongside this instance and set some alarms for them. So now when you get an alarm, it goes off at 2 a.m. because that's when gremlins use the internet, um, right? It's, always, it's like 2.13. It's like, what in the hell is going on? Who has a cron job schedule right now? Um, so now, like at 2 a.m., when you get an alarm, you get an email, just like you would like PagerDuty, right? You think about where we are today. It's like, oh, PagerDuty, oh, PagerDuty alert. And you're like, oh, fuck, I hate that sound. At 2.13 in the morning, click on it. Uh, here's your alarm and Datadog. You go to Datadog, and it feels like you just walked into Vegas at 3 a.m. It's just like <laughs> crash all over the ground. You're like, okay, something's broke. I can see the things going up this way, and it's red. That's not good. But like, what, what's broken? Okay. 
it looks like I'm out of database connections on my application. Well, shit, like our traffic's no different than it normally is. I mean, the application hasn't been deployed in three weeks because it's a pretty stable app that we're not like actively working on. Like, what's changed? Like, if, if the traffic's the same, the application hasn't changed in weeks, why am I out of database connections? That's super weird. Well, the reason you're out of it is because Tony on the ops team, um, he got in trouble because the Postgres instance was too expensive. The CFO was mad. They're like, we got to control our costs. He scaled down the Postgres instance and it can't handle as many connections now. So now this change that happened that's not in your purview as a developer in a different Git repo has caused an outage on your application. And you're sitting there trying to figure out like, why, why can't my application connect to Postgres? You, if you don't have access to that Git repo, you have no idea. If you don't have a dashboard for that Postgres instance, you have no idea. If you haven't seen the cost change that Postgres instance, you have no idea. Like we don't have agency as developers, we have chaos, right? So now you're sitting there for hours trying to figure out what it is. And you hop into Slack and you're like at channel, like has anybody changed anything about the database? And Tony's like, yeah, yeah, we have some cost things. It was, it was sitting at like 10% CPU all the time. So we just scaled it down to some T3 micros or whatever. And they're like, oh, look, there's your problem, right? And so with Mass Driver, the way the story's a little different is you get your alert, um, you click on the link. We take you to your infrastructure diagram. We highlight the thing that is broken. And from there, you can see the metrics and you can see the change history of everything that's a dependency of your applications. So you see your cluster, you see your databases, you see your queues. And I can see right there, I'm like, oh, Chris made a change to the database yesterday. What did he change? You click on the database, you visually diff, we'll show you the difference. So we're actually keeping track of the changes in your Terraform, Helm, et cetera. And it's like, since yesterday, this is what's changed, the instance type. And you're like, there's your problem. And now I can fix it from right there. I can go back to bed. And in the morning, I'll call the CFO and I'll be like, that instance is going to be expensive again. <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe I can to my app to deal with that. Maybe I throw a PG bouncer into the mix. But like the ability to like get through and resolve an issue, like this was never like our intention in the platform. Our intention was like letting people get infrastructure securely and safely but what's happened is like it's just much easier to understand what's going on when you're looking at a diagram right like we all want diagrams we draw it on a whiteboard we go to our desks and we do some crazy shit in terraform and then somebody comes along six months later and they're like we gotta diagram this they they terraform visualize it and get that horrendous resource bag and then they try to back that out to like a lucid chart or like cloud craft. And you're like, hey, we've diagrammed it. And nobody updates it for six months. And then six months later, somebody, something breaks. And you're like, this isn't what our system looks like at all. Like we want it to be visual. Like we, anybody who says we don't want it to be visual, if you've ever seen touch a whiteboard or cloud craft or lucid charts, you're a liar. Like we want it to be visual. But like there's not a way of doing it. So I think that's what's fundamentally different about us. Like we don't want to just throw a portal on top of Kubernetes and be like, you can see all your services. Like it's like, we're going to change the way that you think about managing it and change the way that you think about troubleshooting it without making you change all of your tooling. Like developer in this scenario just writes code and your engineering team or your ops team says, hey, we support on AWS, we support EKS and Lambdas. Great. We have two separate platforms, a Lambda platform and a Kubernetes platform and mass driver. I use the one that my team needs. If I'm on the backend team and we're like, actually, you know what, we're making this service I don't know that I need a full instance. It's very small. I could be able to run on Lambda. I don't have to go and try to get the ops team or the platform team to like build out this new functionality for me. I just say, oh, we already have API gateway in Lambda. The front end team uses it for some Jamstack stuff. I'm going to drag this Lambda over, push a small function up in there and call it a day. 
right? Like, what, like, why should I have to engage with a product team and spend time trying to convince them of what my needs are, waiting for them to build an MVP, survey the rest of the team? It's like, I need to get some work done. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause then your, your, um, your ops team becomes the bottleneck and the, the limiting factor to your business. And that sucks because like, I feel like we're always the bottleneck. Yeah. We're always the bottleneck. I mean, nobody's ever like, Oh my gosh, I was going to go ask the ops team for something. And, and they already imagined it and did it before I got there. You know, no matter what, even in the best scenario, like you're waiting a bit, like we're always a little bit of a bottleneck. You bring us in early on a project and you're like, okay, we're working on this project. We're trying, I'm going to try and figure out what the cloud infrastructure is. It's like, you can do that. But I also feel like when you're very, very early in a project talking about what it could be, like you don't know how the software and requirements are going to change. Right. And so like at the end of the day, in reality, it's like any given Terraform resource or collection of resources isn't months of work for us. Right. It's like trying to figure out what you need, what abstraction to expose to you. And then I cobble up some Terraform, put in some practices, write my OPA rules and like off we go. Like, I don't need three months to do that for the couple of services you're going to use. So like, when is the right time to bring me in? Probably like some percent of the way through the project. Like once you have something like viable running, maybe you're using local stack to like figure it out locally or you're using mass driver. Um, but, um, uh, you can. Um, but so like, like when do you bring us in? Like we're always a little bit of a bottleneck. And the reality is, is like maybe at Google they're not because there's 10,000 ops engineers, but like for the average company where you're out ratioed, I think we say like one to seven is like the good ratio of ops to engineers. There's not one to seven on the planet. Yeah. Like, like if you look at the if you look at the Stack Overflow survey and you look at the numbers there, like it's it's not there. Like if we have 27 million software developers, we do not have two point, sorry, I'm not good at math. We don't have two seven million operations engineers, right? Like there, there's not that many roles. Or sorry, there is that many roles and they're all sitting open, right? Like we have one of the longest roles that sit open. We also have one of the shortest tenures. Why is that? Why does it take forever to place us and we quit all the time? We're also one of the highest paid people on the team, right? It's because we bounce those jobs constantly and get those raises. Like we are always going to be a bottleneck until we start doing something that helps us scale. And even in platform engineering scenario, like we still are a bottleneck when somebody starts to move outside of the platform, right? right. If we get that good balance of like the platform, like, I'm never a bottleneck to you because the platform serves what you need. And then when you kind of go outside of like the norm and you go off that golden path, um, now we might be a bottleneck. Now we're talking about being a product. Okay, great. Like, what do you need? Like, how can we do this for you better? Okay, great. We need to support ECS because there's some ECS task integration with Redshift or something. I don't know. I don't think that actually exists. But like, let's say there's like a very specific use case. Like, okay, cool. Let's put together a real proof of concept Terraform module that has ECS. I'll push it up to you. You can throw it onto your canvas, connect it to the Redshift module we already have. And like, let's let's iterate on this and get it good enough so that we can have like market like production quality for any other team that might need to do some ECS stuff, right? Um, so. Yeah. And I, and I think that gets into the social aspect of DevOps too. Like if you can socialize to the teams that you support, these are the products, like these are the platforms that we've built for you to use and you can like define the rules of engagement, then they know when they're venturing outside of those rules of engagement and then they need to come back and talk to you about that. But without doing that, the engineering teams see DevOps as everything being a one-off. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm, I'm going to deploy this thing. 
got to go talk, I got to go talk to the the DevOps guys. And it's such a painful process that they wait to the last minute because they just don't want to deal with our bullshit. And, yeah. and so I think just like creating that catalog for lack of a better term, like here's the, here's the things you can choose from in the catalog and we do custom orders. We just need a little lead time, but if you can like get, get them to that point where they feel like they understand what you do, then you can socialize that conversation. And I feel like those conversations are always hard, right? Because like, I feel like a lot of people, again, like maybe not everybody that's listening, like has this experience, but like when you go to an ops person, whether it's a ticket or you walk over to their desk and like, you need something that's like out of the ordinary, right? Like, um, Let's 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 imagine that you had this magic tool where you could actually find all of your Terraform modules that your company supports, right? And you go to that you go to that repo and you're like, ah, like Mongo Atlas isn't there. We need Mongo Atlas. We need a document store. Maybe they don't have maybe they don't have Postgres and they don't realize they can just use Postgres. Sorry, I'm Postgres. <laughs> like, I need Mongo Atlas, but it's not here. Now I got to go talk to the ops team, open a ticket, got to figure it out myself. Maybe if that's our if that's our culture, and that's fine. But you go to the ops person, you say, hey, like, um, we need Mongo Atlas for this new project. And it's like, we, do you need Mongo Atlas because they sent you some marketing materials or do you need Mongo? So we can throw Mongo in a container for you. Like, what do you, like, why do you need Atlas? And also, like, important question, like, why not, why not document DB? Yeah. Right? In AWS, right? Like, and the catch is, is like, it's really funny. Like, so people, <laughs> anyone out there has used document DB? I know, I know, I know. Chill out. Um <laughs> trying to make an example here i'm not a, i'm not a document db fanboy but like the reality is like there's a like document db like can have a pretty similar experience to mongo like there are places that like obviously mongo is going to move faster in feature development and like the mongo space yes but if you're not using you're just using some basic document store like you might not need everything that mongo has and if it is i think mongo even publishes like a last time i checked it was like either like a, a list or a tool that could show like what document db didn't support mm-hmm. right they're like hey like use us because this doesn't do this one thing it's like if you don't need that operation now and you can't see the chance you need that operation or configuration option in the future does it benefit us to spend the money to have an enterprise account or whatever at mongo atlas where it'll bind to our vpc do we want to go through the effort of peering our vpcs with mongo atlas um, like, do we want to go over the public internet to hit them? Like, there's a lot of questions in the mind. And so like, the gut reaction from the ops person is like, why do you need, why do you need Mongo Atlas? Which like, it's very hard to ask that question without sounding like you're criticizing the person that's made that decision. Right. And it's like, right. I'm, not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just trying to understand, like, I don't know if you know all the options that are available and I'm trying to figure out like, what is the right service for us? Right. So like, can we, can we try document DB so it doesn't, create a ton of work for us because if you need document db i can throw together that terraform module i'll skip lunch if you do me this favor but if you need mongo atlas we have to go sign to enterprise account talk to procurement do some vpc bindings maybe we have maybe we've made the dumb choice of having you know that that cider subnet that makes it impossible for us to bind to other <laughs> or to peer into other people's networks right you don't know like you don't know like how well or chaotic our VPC is, right? So like there's there's other things that come to mind when we start talking about using these databases as services that sit outside of um, AWS. And so I feel like like that that's just like a problem that exists like in our in our collaboration. And I feel like that's another thing that like we just need to be able to simplify, right? Like being able to say like, 
these are the things that we support. You can quickly find them right and be able to get new services into people's hands quickly, even to experiment. But like, how do we get the time for that, right? Like I've had cases where people have asked for something. I'm like, I could throw together a, do- a document DB. Like this is a, a real scenario I'm, I'm parroting from a previous job. It's like, I could have put a module together for them in maybe an hour or two for them to try out document DB to see if it's good enough. But I had too much work to do. Like right. I didn't have enough time to do a little experiment to see if I could save myself a bunch of time, a bunch of time, right? And so it's just like, okay, like they need this thing. And it always seems like they need it now, right? It's like, oh, like why didn't this come up? It's like, well, we didn't know we need document databases when we started the project. You were at that meeting. Uh, I was at that meeting. I wasn't at subsequent ones because like there wasn't anything that was needed for me. We were using Postgres. It got to the point where like somebody's like, oh, we actually need Mongo for this. And someone grew installed Mongo or they added it to their Docker Compose file and they didn't think, oh shit, somebody else over there is going to have to do work, right? Right. So now I'm a bottleneck again. But it's like, I'm not a bottleneck. It's that whole like, you know, lack of preparation on your part. It's not an emergency on my part. (laughs) You sound like an asshole for saying that, right? And For sure. So like, that's the thing that just kind of sucks. Like that collaboration is really, really hard to do well for most organizations. Can we jump to that thing that we were talking about earlier before the call started? I want to share this story. Can we talk about, do we have time to talk about some IT stuff, some, some IT help desk days stuff? Yeah, for sure. Cause we both, we both started our careers in yeah. help desk. So help desk horror stories, take one, go for it. I, the one I wanted to share with you earlier. So my, my career, um, I was originally a, a physics and architecture major, but I was working at a hospital. Um, and I was working in data entry. I'd been doing software development since I was like 15 or 16. I wrote a little program that did my job. It did my data entry. So it just like read from Excel docs and like input them into this like terminal system used for um, uh, explanation of benefits for uh, for the hospital I worked at. Um, and um, when I when I automated my job, I I wasn't a software engineer, so I didn't sign like a PIA form. I didn't, they did not have rights to my software. I wrote it at home. Like it was mine. They had to buy it from me, which is exciting. (laughs) So how I got into help desk was they offered me a thousand dollars for my little program and a job on the help desk team. And I was like, what? You're going to pay me $9 an hour and give me a thousand bucks. I'm 18. I'm like, I'm rich. I I literally, I took that thousand dollars. I kid you not. I put a down payment on a wave runner. Like I, I was imagine being I didn't have a place to park it. I did not think this through. I, I lived in a dorm. I'm like, what in the hell am I going to do with this wave runner? Um, but I was just so stoked. Um, and uh, I was on this help desk team. And wow, like help desk is like we give those people so much shit. Like I think of every support person you call. It's just like it's so hard not to be like, especially like especially calling help desk or anything technical as a software engineer. Like, yes, I know. I understand how to log in. Just, yeah, I know. Like, right. Like, and so it's frustrating, but like those, those, like we're frustrated with them, but like their job is really hard. Like they do run into a bunch of people that are just not familiar with computers all day long. And so they have to assume like they're meeting more people like that than people that are right. Right. I, we had 17 offices at my second or 17 offices in, uh, across Florida. And so like our, our, my, my domain was pretty big. Like I would drive places all the time. I uh, had a couple of like data centers. Like it was the first one was in the building I was in. We had a second one up in uh, like Zephyr Hills. Um, and 
um, is I'm in Fort Myers, Florida. So anybody in Florida, Fort Myers or Zephyr Hills, imagine driving this distance for a help desk call. So next time you're talking to a help desk person in there, talking to you like you're dumb, like this is this is their life. So this is a multi-hour drive. And and effectively what has happened is like their, um, gosh, I can't remember what it was. Something was frozen on their on their computer. And every time they rebooted, it was frozen. And it was just like, okay. That's a hard one to troubleshoot. Like, I can't even like remote desk into it, like, because um, they, they rebooted it. Uh, and this is, by the way, this is 2001 or 2002. So we didn't have the great tools we have today. So I drive two hours to Zephyr Hills. I go into the office and I'm like, show me this computer. And sure as shit, um, I sit down at it. I'm at the screen. I grab the mouse and I go to click uh, to log in. And the mouse doesn't move. I'm like, oh, shit, it is frozen. Then I hit the tab button and it tabs into the username field. And I'm like, it's not frozen. That's interesting. So then I put in like one of the admin passwords. I log in and I'm like, okay. I go grab the mouse and move it again. Nothing. Nothing. And I'm like, so the first thing I do is I look under, there's this big tower. The mouse is unplugged. Mind you, I've just driven two, I've just driven two hours for an unplugged mouse and I have to drive two hours home. And I look down and I'm just like, and so I plug it back in it works. And she was like, how did you fix it? I'm like, the mouse can't the mouse and this is a, this isn't like a usb mouse this is like one of those old like din connector things like this oh, right, yeah real hard to yank this thing out so what i was able to tell from looking at it as well was it was pulled out with some force so the assumption is it got wrapped around her rank ankle and like <laughs> pulled out of the machine some of those sliding things right here where it slid out with like the keyboard and the mouse right like there was some serious force to pull this thing out someone must have known like i feel like a trip must have happened um, but yeah, so that was, that was one of my, that's one of my favorite ones. that was a little fun. My favorite one that was not fun. Um, this is second, com- second, uh, I ended up kind of focusing in healthcare once I changed careers. So my master's is in, uh, healthcare information systems. So I worked for another company and we had these two offices, um, that were, um, gosh, I don't want to give away. Well, I guess I have to give it away. Uh, these two offices that were were connected. So there's a data center here and literally across the street was one of our heart surgery centers. And uh, this is 2003 or so. And like, we're, we're pretty far along. Like we've got Wi-Fi all over the place. We've got a, like a digital pill system for dispersing like pills in our pharmacy. Like we, we've heavily invested in technology. We had a really great engineering budget. Um, we had badges to log in the machines, which is a nightmare for HIPAA. We got fined so much from doctors just leaving their badges places. Um, <laughs> I like a, a HIPAA shopper who came in and like the doctor left the card and they logged in and just accessed a bunch of shit. It's just like, oh, kill me. Um, but my boss was, this was like in the days when you could haze new engineers. I don't know if you ever, did you ever get hazed? Yeah, a time or two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is me progressing from help desk into like the like network operations, so like working our data center. And so we had these two sites, and it was going to cost us something insane, like $120,000 or something wild to run internet like under the road to our other office. Um, and we didn't want them like using dial up or anything like that to like dial in. It's heart surgery center. Like we need this thing to be online. And so what we did is we installed microwave dishes on the roofs. Pointing at each other, and we had point-to-point microwave internet between between these two offices, and they started having outages, and they were very intermittent. They were very random, and they were very brief, but like brief enough that it would like stop like an upload or you know like some sort of scan upload. They're scanning back to like our um, medical record system, 
And so we thought it was birds. We thought birds had gotten on the <laughs> on the thing. So my boss is like, I'm like, well, what are we, how, like, how are we going to fix this? I'm going to throw some of those little bird things on there to like stop them from, I don't right. know. I don't, yeah, the little spikes. I don't know what putting those on a microwave dish actually would have done. And he's like, let's <laughs> confirm that it's birds first. And I'm like, what are we going to do? Ask them? Like, he's like, uh, no. And I was like, okay, well, what are you going to do? And he's like, come here. And he walks out to his truck. And I shit you not, he's got one of those umbrellas with a stand on it, a lawn chair, and then he has two walkie <laughs> talkies. And I'm like, who's this for? He's like, you're gonna, this is Florida. This is summer. He's like, you're going to sit on the roof. And when they have an outage, I'm going to call you on the walkie talkie and you're going to tell me what you see. <laughs> so I'm sitting up there for like six hours and all of a sudden, walkie talkie, hey, uh, surgery center's down. What's going on? And I'm looking there, I'm looking at the, the thing and I'm like, dude, there's no birds on this thing. Like I'm looking at him like, there's, there's no birds. Like I, I don't know why it's down, there's no birds. And so like I have my little like foxhound thing. I can still see that there's like signal going through the wire. There's it's just out. And, and then all of a sudden it's back up and I'm like, hey, it's back up. I'm like, I'm stumped. <laughs> like I'm right. stumped. Like this was not in the net plus book. This wasn't in the A plus book. Like I got it. <laughs> I got an MCSE. This was not on the test. Right. Like, um, and so I'm sitting there for like a while and maybe like two or three hours later goes out again. And I'm like, maybe it's a bird on the other side. Like maybe it's a bird on the receiver that didn't even think about this. I don't know if everybody else is like, it's a bird on the other receiver, you idiot. Um, and so I look across the street and I don't see the satellite. What I see is a semi-truck parked at a red light. <laughs> <laughs> like the other building was a house that was converted into a surgery center. And we were in this, essentially this um, strip mall that had been converted into our data center and like our primary care uh, physician's office. So this thing's like 30, 40 feet tall and this house is, you know, however tall the house is. And so the beam's just hitting the side of this truck, probably packed a ton of stuff. And so <laughs> the solution was longer poles. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, um, the driver who had frozen pizzas in his truck shows up with fully cooked pizzas at the destination. <laughs> I was just like blasting. I don't, I don't even remember how fast yeah. internet was. Uh, with, yeah. What was the 100 megabit, I think, back then? Like a uh, network, I don't know what the I don't know what the satellite, the little satellite thing did, but yeah, he's like, yeah. I got fourteen cooked pizzas and a brain tumor. Anything else? <laughs> uh, I hope I don't know. Like, I kind of want maybe when I retire, I'll just go back and work in it for a year. Where it's like it's probably a lot less stressful when you don't need to do it to pay your bills. Like, oh, for I, sure. bet becomes, I bet it becomes pretty fun then. It's just like, okay, like what what kind of weird shit do y'all have for me today? <laughs> right. Just see how far you can push the envelope. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But do you have a good help desk horror story? Yeah. So um, the first help desk job I had was working for um, a manufacturing company that had a huge sales department selling their product. And, um, you know, this was this was uh, like 99, 2000 era. And um, so they, um, the salespeople were just coming out of the stage of having their Rolodex where they would pick up the phone and, and dial and then write down in a notebook what they were doing. So they were trying to get them to use uh, CRM software. And at the same time, they had to build computer skills, you know. But I get this call from this sales guy. 
It's like, hey, I'm, I'm out of disk space. I, I can't save anything on my computer. And I had the ability to check their disk space. And I looked, I'm like, no, you've got, you've got plenty of disk space. He's like, look, I'm telling you, I cannot save anything on my computer. I don't know what your little, your little magic thing down there does, but it's wrong because I'm telling you, I cannot save anything on my computer. I'm like, all right, I'll come up. So I'll go up there up on the third floor. I go up there, find him in this sea of cubicles. I'm like, okay, what's going on? And he's like, look. And he shows me his desktop. And on his desktop, he had icons for every saved document he had sent to a customer lined up from left to right. And there was not room to put another icon there. He's like, I can't save it. There's no place to put it. Yeah, he was he was he was geographically out of space. That's what he was trying to say. Right. I was writing down what I thought it was, and that was not it. <laughs> what, what was your guess? I was guessing he had the hard drive. You were seeing that, but he was trying to save something to a floppy disk. Was my well, first guess. Yeah, uh, and it was too big. Uh, but it definitely wasn't uh, the the grid on Windows ninety eight. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> oh my gosh, it is fun. Um, it is fun, but it is also frustrating. So be nice to your support people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just, like with a grain of salt, understand like who they might have been talking to yeah. just before they got on the phone with you. It's so hard. It's hard like too when it's just like, oh man, like like making I always felt bad when somebody's like, I feel dumb. And it's like, I mean, like, I don't know, I'd feel pretty dumb if I was doing open heart surgery. Like I I'd fuck that right? up or like, <laughs> like <laughs> job, like you shouldn't have to know, but uh, oh gosh, that's funny. <laughs> cool. Well, Corey, it's been great having you on the show, man. This has been a blast. I have had a great time. This is super fun. Cool. So, well, um, happy to have you back on anytime because I'm sure we've got more stories, especially healthcare stories. We could go down the healthcare path. I worked as um, as a support operations engineer for a teleradiology company. And there's just so many stories coming out of that that are just too funny. <laughs> and, and I think it's been long enough now where like any, like anything I could get sued for saying has passed. So I could tell those stories now. <laughs> oh my gosh. I have, I have one that can't be told on camera that is really right? <laughs> mind boggling. I don't know if like, if you had this experience, but doctors, Doctors all think they're God, or at least most of the ones that I met. Yeah. Uh, when they're doctors that like own, like when I worked in like a big practice and the doctors were all like board members and shareholders of the practice, like, ooh, that ego is gets big. But we had one where his ego was big and his sense of humor was brutally messed up. <laughs> and, uh, I'll share that story once we're not streaming live anymore because it is not, uh, it is beyond rated R. <laughs> <laughs> right on and that's a segue for uh our new podcast things we can't say on the air so <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh listen no sincerely thank you i've had a blast i appreciate you coming on the show and thanks to everyone who hung out for us this entire time hope it was helpful entertaining and i hope to see y'all next week yeah, if it wasn't helpful, I really hope it was entertaining. That's like, these are my, these are my two goals in life. I'm like, but I'm, they're always competing. Um, and yeah, if you can just hit one of them every once in a while, that's that's yeah. winning. If I give somebody a lull, I'm going to have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, All right, see you, everyone. <laughs>